Uh, good morning, everyone. Special welcome to all of you, and an extra special welcome to all of our visitors today. Um, the scripture reading this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. In your uh, Bible in front of, in the seat there in front of you, it's page 899. If you are physically able, we'd ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Haven't I seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without any, any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we do endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of, this, of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. pray together. Lord, we pray once again for the families that we just um, enjoy time with dedicating their children unto the Lord. Pray uh, for their flourishing um, together and also for our ongoing intentionality as a body that we would care well for the parents and care well for these kids. We love you. We pray, Father, for your kindness to us as we uh, take in this text 
and we yearn to change and to be different when we leave here, more in awe of you because of it. Holy Spirit, work accordingly. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, we spent some time talking about rights, and we're going to be doing so again this Sunday, albeit exploring a bit of new territory. If at any point in your life you've been a teenager, which is a circumstance that applies to, I would say, the vast majority of adults, you know a lot about rights and how to assert them. You know, I'm, I'm 16, I can do what I want, I have rights. Back when I was a teenager, you would, you would yell something like that. That was like in the late 90s. I'm not sure what we yell now. But you would yell something like that. And then you would go back into your room and close the door, and you would put on a CD is what you would do. But I grew up in a Christian household, a church-going household, so my musical options didn't always suit my mood. I had managed to acquire a CD from a friend that he titled, get this, he called it Get Crunk was a, a collection of Christian rap before it was cool or good. So that's what I would put on as I would be back there in my room, and it would be, you know, yo, Christ died on the cross. Like, yeah, he did. That's just not really what I'm feeling right now. And so I would wrestle through all of that as I was lamenting my rights. That describes you if you had an angsty phase like I did. You're going to resonate quite a lot with what the Apostle Paul has to say in this passage this morning in affirmation of his rights. And yet, despite the legitimacy of our rights, so to speak, we're going to see that real joy is actually found in prioritizing something beyond our rights and honestly beyond ourselves entirely, which is part of the upside-down nature of being a Jesus follower here in the West The personal wellness narrative is essentially look out for yourself and make time for yourself and be good to yourself, etc. But the biblical narrative pulls us beyond ourselves on account of glorious and transcendent realities that become our true reward. If you're in need of some refreshment this morning, you are so in luck because there's quite a lot of it to be found in our text despite the countercultural implications. Two reflections this morning. The goodness of earthly blessings, and then secondly, the beauty of self-forgetfulness. The goodness of earthly blessings, and then the beauty of self-forgetfulness. Let's begin with the first. The goodness of earthly blessings, as we make our way through half of chapter 9, and we will do the second half next Sunday. They're related, but we don't have time to do all of it in one breath. Look again at verses 1 through 4. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Why this defense from the Apostle Paul? Two possibilities. First, a few months ago when we began our series in 1 Corinthians, we discussed the increasingly pervasive factionalism that was infecting the Corinthian church 
much of it having to do with believers in the church aligning themselves with particular leaders rather than with one another in and under Christ. And here's the thing, when you join team so and such, you're more inclined to cast the leaders that you're not as enamored with into unfavorable light, partly to justify your own decision-making. And this might explain the defense language in verse 3, which would imply that Paul was coming underneath the microscope of some influential people within the church, thus his need to make a defense to those who would examine him concerning his status as an apostle. In that case, making a defense was surely exasperating. See, for example, his comments in verse 1 about the supernatural events that inaugurated his apostleship. Have I not seen the Lord Jesus Christ? Answer, yes. Famously on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And the very existence of the Corinthian church and the spiritual growth that they were experiencing was itself another very powerful confirmation of Paul's apostolic calling and authority. Verse 1 again and then verse 2. Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Some of you might recall very similar language in 2 Corinthians from our series a couple of years ago. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, that is, of Paul's calling, written on our hearts. Today we tend to evaluate spiritual leaders according to the size of their churches and the size of their social media platforms and the proliferation of their books. But biblically speaking, depth matters a whole lot more than breadth. Fifteen people growing in their love for Christ and experiencing radical life transformation is a far stronger witness to the calling of their spiritual shepherd than the witness of 15,000 people showing up on Sundays or watching YouTube videos but ultimately persisting in spiritual lukewarmness. Very often the most faithful shepherds are laboring in what the world would consider the small and the mundane. And some of you are doing just that, either formally or informally. And because of the world's faulty standards, you're so needlessly discouraged. Please hear me. God is so encouraged by your work, and he sees it. There is, secondly, another possible, kind of more benign explanation for Paul's defense as well. It may be that he was simply using himself as an example of how and when to give up your rights, something that he was asking Corinthian believers to do back in chapter 8 related to the matter of eating meat sacrificed to idols. And in order to use yourself as an example of someone who's giving up his rights for a particular cause, first you have to affirm or defend the fact that you indeed have rights to give up. Which rights or freedoms, verse 1, did Paul have? Verse 4, the right to eat and drink, which given the context might refer to his right to eat idle meat if it's 
offered to him, but more broadly, it refers to his right to receive assistance, food, drink, shelter, etc., as he goes about his ministry. Verse 5, he has the right to take along a believing wife, just as other apostles did, including Cephas, that is, Peter. And apparently the brothers of Jesus did as well. Verse 6, the wording here is tricky, but Paul is arguing that he and his ministry compatriot Barnabas have the right to refrain from working for a living, working meaning getting their hands dirty with the working class by taking up a trade or something like that. In other words, as ministers of the gospel, they have the right to receive financial remuneration from those they are ministering to, including local churches themselves, in order to sustain their work. Ministry is a legitimate vocation, and it is good when those who do ministry can sustain themselves financially through said ministry and devote themselves entirely to that work. Bivocational ministry is sometimes necessary. It can be its own kind of good for sure, but you can see the benefit of ministers or apostles being single-minded instead of attending to other vocational responsibilities on the side. Should anyone challenge Paul concerning these rights that he says very confidently that he has, along with Barnabas and others, boy does Paul have some examples ready for you to support his line of reasoning. So many examples. Look at verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? No one. That's the implied answer. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? No one. Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? No one. And this shows you the, the stage of life I'm in right now. But as I was reading this, I immediately, I immediately thought to myself, who becomes the Batman without help from a butler? No one. <laughs> Paul should have included that one too. But if you're still not convinced, Paul brings out the big stick in verses 8 and 9, an argument that would have been especially powerful to Jews familiar with the Torah. Paul says, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses. You can see this in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. It is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The ancient Near East farmers would use oxen to thresh harvested grain by walking around on it, by, by stomping on it to loosen the edible parts of the grain from the straw. Muzzling the oxen would prevent them from eating the grain while they threshed it, thereby preserving more of the crop for human consumption. But according to the Mosaic law, farmers were forbidden from doing so because the oxen deserved to benefit from the fruit of their labor. It was inhumane, it was unjust to require labor without a reward, even for the oxen. So if this was the case for an ox, as important as they are, how much more is this the case for humans created in the image of God? Keep going in verse 9 through the first part of verse 12. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Kind of, but not exclusively. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because 
the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Answer, no, it's not too much. If others share this rightful claim on you, like other apostles or whoever, do not we even more? Answer, yes. In a moment, we will return to this matter of rights, but for now, I want to canoe a bit in the waters of what we might call a, a tributary connected to this fine river. I'm trying to stay geographically relevant here. We are in North Florida after all. City Church, please note the goodness of the earthly gifts that God provides for his people. It is good to eat and drink. In fact, our bodies are designed to require it. It is good for us to be well cared for by others when we are in need in order to be strengthened and refreshed on account of gospel ministry or any other kind of God-honoring exertion. It is good for us to have a believing spouse. And of course, as we just discussed in chapter 7, there's much goodness and benefit to be found in singleness as well. It is good for us to benefit individually and communally from the fruit of our vocational labor, to harvest the bountiful crop, to benefit from the milk of a well-tended flock, to get paid a fair wage, etc., etc. All of that is good. Consider, for example, that this is how the Garden of Eden operated before the fall, before sin and idolatry even existed. God put Adam in the garden to work it and keep it. Working and keeping that would be extravagantly fruitful and satisfying. And that was good. But are we convinced that this is the case? That these things and many other things, are good things. Listen, I am all about prizing Christ far beyond all other people or things. I am all about fleeing idolatry, as Paul himself is going to exhort us in chapter 10. Not just literal idols like those you find in pagan Corinthian temples, but any person or thing that becomes a substitute God in the place of the one true God. But idolatry is not automatically the same thing as recognizing and enjoying the goodness of earthly blessings, and I'm not sure we always know the difference, especially those of us really zealous folks. I'm not sure we always have a category for enjoying without idolizing. Instead of enjoying, we analyze and analyze, and we analyze again. You know, it's satisfying to earn a living from a hard day's work. Oh, no, I bet, I bet I'm greedy. I really enjoy making and eating good food. Oh, no, I bet it's an idol. I bet I'm enjoying it too much. I really enjoy walking through life with my spouse and children. Oh, no, I bet I'm, I bet I'm idolizing my family. Now, those things can be true, for sure. But more than a few of us are excessively introspective, and it totally robs us of our joy. Two weeks ago, after the first practice of a youth baseball team I helped coach, I went home really encouraged and excited because I really enjoy coaching youth sports. And I felt like that first practice 
went really well. And then just three hours later, as I was trying to fall asleep, my mind was swirling with joy-sucking thoughts. You know, I probably care about this too much. It's probably too much of a time commitment. And then I couldn't sleep for like an hour. I went from joy to angst in the blink of an eye. I should have put on that, that Get Crunk CD, I guess. <laughs> I went from joy to angst in the blink of an eye. And you know, I don't think it was the Holy Spirit's conviction. I think it was my own doing. And God would love for me to be free of that sort of thing. He would love for you to be free of that sort of thing. If you're trying to discern the difference between enjoying a good gift from God and idolizing something, thanksgiving is a very powerful diagnostic. Godly enjoyment of good gifts tends to reroute us back to the creator of said gifts via thanksgiving to God, both formally and spontaneously. So if you're enjoying gifts in a way that catalyzes thanksgiving unto the Lord, you are probably in a great space. On the other hand, idolatry pulls us into the things or people themselves, clouding our vision of God and crowding out any space for thanksgiving. A gratitude desert is therefore concerning. But at the same time, gratitude may well be the pipeline for reclaiming God-centeredness in your life and simultaneously enjoying his gifts in their proper place. Thanksgiving is a total idolatry buster and I don't think we talk about that nearly enough. Now we need to make our way back to the river, though, the main one. For as you recall, Paul is establishing a foundation for his right to enjoy good things and to receive financial support from churches and so forth because he's going to tell us about his decision to lay down those rights in pursuit of his reward. And that brings us to our second reflection, the beauty of of self-forgetfulness. This is one of the many ways in which Christianity is absolutely fascinating and unique. Christianity affirms the goodness of God's gifts, including the goodness of material things. In fact, you're not winning extra spiritual points with God for going without. It doesn't make you a super-Christian. And yet... Sometimes it makes all the sense in the world to give those things up for the sake of a greater good, not out of compulsion, but frankly, because you want to. Look at the middle of verse 12 through 14. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, that is, to get financial support for their ministry, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. I love it that Paul sneaks in two more arguments for his apostolic rights. Two more. Don't you know that those involved with temple service, and now he's talking about the, the Jewish temple service associated with the Jerusalem temple, not pagan temples. Don't you know that they benefit personally from their involvement? such as by eating sacrificial meat that wasn't consumed on the altar. And do you recall when Jesus sent out his disciples, he told them to find free hospitality, including food and shelter, wherever they went, as a matter of course. I'm just saying, 
The main thing, though, was that he was laying down his right to receive remuneration for his ministry. A right that he really, 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 really had. <laughs> because he wanted to avoid putting any kind of obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't know everything that was going on in the background culturally. But apparently Paul had sufficient reasons to be concerned that accepting remuneration from the people he was ministering to locally in Corinth or really elsewhere as he made his way to different places, he had reason to be concerned that this might cause some of those to whom he was ministering to to conclude that he was only in it for the money, thereby misunderstanding Paul's entire ministry and undermining the heart of the gospel message. And as Paul puts it, Rather dramatically in verse 15, I told you this was an angsty text. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. I would rather die. That ground for boasting being this divine calling he has to preach the gospel, Christ crucified, no matter what. I'm reminded here of chapter 1, verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So get this. Paul has fallen so in love with God and with the gospel of Jesus Christ that he will not allow anything to get in the way of people knowing that he's proclaiming Christ because Christ has compelled him to preach and this Christ is very, very glorious. He will not let misunderstandings about money get in the way. He will not give people even an inch to say things like, oh, well, he's... He's just doing this because it's his job. He cannot do this. He will not do this because Christ is spectacular. And he's gotten a hold of Paul's life so comprehensively that he speaks of preaching out of necessity, verse 17, essentially comparing himself to a slave working on behalf of his master. But in this case, it's a status he desperately wants and loves. There is zero reluctance or regret, only joy. So Paul has no personal grounds for boasting as he preaches the gospel, verse 16. But he certainly has Christ-oriented grounds that have pulled him so far away from himself that he's essentially forgotten himself. To the point that he can say with a straight face, verse 18, that his reward is presenting the gospel free of charge. A reward that is so precious to him that he's willing to sacrifice some of the beautiful earthly blessings we were just talking about. And since our time is especially short this morning, I'll just ask you this. Don't you want to be overwhelmed like this? Isn't there something so enticing about the way Paul is talking about his love for Jesus 
in the gospel. Don't we want to be so overwhelmed that we're walking around thinking to ourselves, I don't want anything to get in the way of Christ. I love him that much. I don't want anything to get in the way of enjoying Christ and of others hearing about Christ crucified for our sins, that they might repent of their sin and turn to Christ and enjoy him too. And here's the thing. It's odd to talk about it like this, but it's true. It's slavery to Christ that actually leads to true freedom because you get released from yourself for the sake of bondage to Christ. Free to no longer center yourself and worry about yourself and be cocky about yourself and loathe yourself and overanalyze yourself. Free to simply be Christ's and then to love other people in large part by testifying to the greatness of Christ. Behold the beauty of the gospel in making us gloriously self-forgetful and free. It's amazing. It's a pathway. It's the only pathway to true joy. It's what the gospel can do. I'll tell you, that's what the gospel is supposed to do. So if you're following Jesus and you're still about yourself, you're still self-concerned, what it means is you're not done, you're not done cooking yet. And if you're not following Jesus, you can see here that a pretty major transformation is in store for you if, in fact, you do decide to follow Christ. It's hard to capture this self-forgetful power of the gospel, so I'll just end by, by showing honor to Alex Farmer. He used to be um, the shepherd, you might say, at Servants of Christ Anglican Church here in Gainesville, a really good friend of mine, and now he's Bishop Alex Farmer. He's the Bishop of the Gulf Atlantic Diocese of the Anglican Church in North America, so great for him in the ACNA, not great for people like me and those who are friends with him locally because he moved to Tallahassee, and that's pretty sad, but also great. Um, but we had the opportunity to go to his ordination service. And it's really fascinating. You go into this cathedral, and there's hundreds of people there, and there's probably a, a two- or three-hour service. Um, and you're thinking to yourself, I'm going here because we're going to go celebrate Bishop Farmer. And then you go to this thing, and it turns out you're celebrating Jesus the entire time. Part of it is because of Bishop Farmer's personality. He is... As far as people that I've known in my lifetime, one of the more other-centered people I've ever met, so unassuming. But then you get there to celebrate Alex, and you know what breaks out? A Jesus party, in which we are pulled away from Alex and pulled away from ourselves and pulled toward Christ. And it becomes this unbelievably transcendent space. Gospel can do that, not just in a room like that. It can do it in your life. One of the most joyful gatherings I've ever been a part of. I'll just call it the most joyful for the sake of rhetorical flair this morning. How about that? Gospel can do that in your life. Amen.